Hi, this is Frank Schaefer. I have had the pleasure of talking to some of the leading authors, artists, activists, and change makers of our time on this podcast. And I want to personally thank you for subscribing, listening, and sharing 100 plus episodes over 100,000 times. We have a lot of work to do to heal our divisions and secure our democracy. And I look forward to more conversations with those important voices that will bring clarity to the situation we find ourselves in as we move toward November of 2024. If you appreciate these conversations and my cultural and political commentary, please subscribe to this podcast in conversation with Frank Schaefer on your favorite platform and to my substack, It Has to Be Said, which can be found at frankschaefer.substack.com. I'd really appreciate the help. Thank you. Well, so the Democratic Party is a big tent, and we represent the beautiful diversity of our country. I know that there is a huge difference between what various members of Congress say and what actually gets put on the floor of the House and what gets yeah. passed. So if you look at the bills that Democrats have passed, a major infrastructure bill, we passed American Rescue Plan that helped get stimulus checks out and helped get kids back into school. Mm got people jobs. If you look at other bills we passed, uh, they include reductions in prescription drug prices, uh, again, uh, pay family leave. Uh, and so you're looking at a lot of policies that are supported by the overwhelming majority of Americans, including Republicans uh, in America. That's what's actually getting passed in the House of Representatives. And yes, we have a lot of different members of Congress and they represent their districts and different districts have, have different views. But if you actually look at actions, uh, the Democratic Party is the one that is taking the actions that most represents the vast majority of their people in America. Hi, this is Frank Schaefer, and this is a podcast and a live video event on Facebook as well, in conversation with Frank Schaefer. Uh, after we do this live event and record it, uh, this is available for our anyone who wants to listen to it on our podcast. And it's also up on YouTube and all the other places we post things. Today, uh, we have a very special guest, um, someone who I have tremendous respect for. And this is the second time that I've interviewed him on In Conversation with Frank Schaefer, Representative Ted Liu from California. And um, Ted, just to cut to the chase today, you know, you and I have talked in the past privately and also here in this forum. Um, since we last talked, something happened that really uh, sort of shocked and depressed me. And I want to get your view on what the state of affairs with this is. As someone who comes out of a background that talked a lot about family values in the 70s and 80s in a kind of a fake family values um, misogyny crusade to remove choice from women and kind of roll back the feminist movement, who then changed his mind on this, I have a very keen sense of the hypocrisy on the side of the Republican activists and right-wing activists, folks like Fox News, when it comes to family values. And one thing that has shocked and depressed me is that so far, paid family leave has not made it into any of the bills in Congress. So the first question I have for you today is what is the chance that we're going to see significant paid parental, family, paternity, and maternity leave uh, backed by the U.S. government um, in, in the U.S. anytime 
uh, in the foreseeable future. What, what, is, what is happening with that? Uh, thank you, Frank, for your question. And uh, first of all, Happy New Year. Happy New and Year to you, too. Thank you. And in regards to your question, the House representatives did, in fact, pass the Build Back Better Act that had paid family leave in it. It is now on the Senate side. Unfortunately, it looks like that at this time, Senator Manchin does not support that provision uh, or the Build Back Better Act uh, right now. And in the U.S. Senate, we don't have 52 Democratic U.S. Senators. We don't have 51. We have exactly 50. Hmm. So if any Democratic U.S. Senator decides to vote no on a Democratic bill, uh, then they can essentially keep that bill from passing. My hope is that Senator Manchin and the Biden administration will continue negotiations and that we can continue to work on the Build Back Better Act and pass a version of it uh, sooner rather than later this year. Yeah, it, it just seems to me that that family values, you know, are this sort of coverall for a lot of activity from the right, whether it's, you know, anti-gay rhetoric or coming to trans issues or abortion or women's health care. But when push comes to shove, you know, there are various areas of hypocrisy that I guess could be talked about for the right or the left. You know, no one is fully consistent. But it seems to me anyway that the most glaring inconsistency on the right, the conservative right, the evangelical right, the backbone of the Trump movement is this issue of support for families on all sorts of practical levels, whether it is um, paid family leave, childcare, and so on. Have you had discussions with people on the right, on the other side of the aisle, or just folks in the media and other places, be it Fox News or anywhere else, where you have asked what their justification is for talking about family values all the time in the abstract, but never backing it up with with activity that actually makes a difference to children and families and to women in particular? Because I, I just think that we shouldn't, can't get enough of bringing this up. Have you taxed any of these folks with that hypocrisy and gotten any kind of answer from them? Uh, that's a great point. And uh, I do want to emphasize that the other reason the Build Back Better Act is not passing U.S. Senate right now is because every single Republican senator is opposed to it, including the family paid family leave provision. And if you saw what happened last year, we passed in the House and the Senate the American Rescue Plan that was great for American families, mm-hmm. and not a single Republican legislator supported uh, that law either. And the American Rescue Plan provided stimulus checks uh, to American families. It also put in the child care, uh, I'm sorry, the child tax credit mm-hmm. that has helped families across America. And it is a very good point you make that when Republicans talk about family values, they only pay lip service to it and they don't back it up uh, with any kinds of policies or legislation. Yeah, you know, back in the day when I w- was a very active part of the Republican Party in the 70s and 80s, I had friends like Jack Kemp and I knew Bob Dole and these other people. Back in those days, you know, when Jack was uh, at, at HUD, um, House and Urban Development, you know, there were there were a lot of Republicans who were open to and and for doing practical things for families and not just impoverished people, but in general. What is your theory to get away from today's politics for a minute, just talk to you as a friend um, and someone who, who really has done some thinking on all this. What is, how do you figure this history that goes from 
people like Jack and others who back in the day were reasonable human beings, whether you agreed with all their policy positions or not, to the period today where not one Republican will cross party lines to vote for something that literally is putting into effect huge chunks of what their political agenda is when they're out campaigning, pro-family, pro-child, have babies, take care of women. And yet when it comes down to it, they'll do nothing. What's happened? Why, why are we at a place where the Republican Party now can be accurately described as anti-family, anti-child, anti-natal, uh, as if they don't want any more kids born when it comes to anything practical? What, not just that they are like this, but how did we get here? What's your view? What happened in the last 30, 40, 50 years? It is a remarkable shift. And you're asking me to think like a Republican, which is hard. Yeah. Now, I do want to note that something else has happened, which is mm. the policies of the Republican Party, Republican legislator started to essentially turn on what one person said, which was the former president. Mm -hmm. And you might recall that uh, last term, the Republican Party didn't even have a platform. Their platform was essentially whatever the former president said. That was essentially their platform. They basically put that in writing. So if the former president would have come out today and say, I support paid family leave, you know what? A bunch of Republicans will all of a sudden start voting for paid family leave. Uh, it is quite remarkable uh, the kind of power that foreign president has on Republican legislators. So you don't really have the same sort of principles anymore in the Republican Party. You basically have adherence to the whims of one man. Yeah. And, you know, it, from my point of view, if you look at what his politics consisted of, such as it was in terms of appointing judges that the Federalist Society had checked out, like Amy Coney Barrett and others, uh, a lot of it had to do with listening to some of his evangelical advisors who helped put him in the White House, people like Franklin Graham, other right-wing activists like Ralph Reed, all of whom, by the way, I knew growing up personally, and some of whom got into politics because of my dad, Francis Schaeffer, the evangelical activist who died in 1984. But what amazes me is that none of these evangelicals who have pressured him to appoint uh, pro-life judges as opposed to pro-choice judges and so forth have ever gone to him, uh, it being true what you've just said, that he could speak up in, on this issue and said, look, uh, you know, Mr. President, we believe in family values. This is, a, this is an issue, paid family leave or... Um, child tax credits to help people have children that we believe in. Could you please come out in favor of this? This would be a good one to urge Republicans to cross party lines and vote on. Why, why do you think that the white evangelical leadership on the right has never used their position of power with this man to get him to do anything practical for family values? Republican Party aside, what has gone on with these church leaders that they don't speak up on this? I know, you know, you're a practicing Roman Catholic. You go to church, you have connections into the spiritual world. What, what has happened here? Because you would think even from the point of view of propaganda, once in a while, they'd want to push someone to cross party lines to do something for families and children so they could turn around and say, hey, look, we're consistent on our issue. There's not even an attempt to pretend consistency.
Hi, this is Frank Schaefer. If you appreciate my cultural and political commentary, please do me a favor and subscribe to my Substack. It has to be said, which can be found at frankschafer.substack.com. You can subscribe for free or you can kick in a couple of dollars a month and help me out and help me keep this going if you're able. Either way, I'm incredibly grateful for your support and most of all for your participation. We have a lot of work to do to heal our divisions and secure our democracy as we move toward November of 2024. And every subscription helps create, build, sustain, and put voice to this movement for truth. Thank you so much. Uh, that's a terrific point. Uh, I can't explain why we're seeing what we're seeing among some of those in the evangelical community. I also uh, find it very alarming and disturbing that there's a separation based on race mm. uh, in terms of how uh, some evangelicals view certain issues, uh, which um, is really antithetical to everything Jesus stood for. And mm. if you Again, go back to family values. It's absolutely clear to me that Jesus would be against family separation. And mm -hmm. that was one of the main points that their former administration pushed. And you have not only folks in the evangelical community who are ignoring families, but also supporting policies that actively harm families. Mm -hmm. And so it is quite remarkable to watch. I can't explain again uh, why this is happening. You, you, you'll have to ask them, uh, but it is a, a disturbing trend. Yeah, and of course it's mirrored in other areas that would be equally shocking if you were from another planet and just came to earth, read the teachings of Jesus and then were introduced to the white evangelical voter and learned that you know it was these folks en masse support, for instance, of the NRA that keeps the gun lobby in business and makes the gun lobby basically the de facto partner to the Republican Party in view of, for instance, the school shootings and all these other atrocities. You know, it, it, it would not be something that, you know, intuitively you'd say, well, the people who are really going to be pushing for arming themselves with military style weapons and a free for all in this area after school shootings are going to be folks who follow this teacher called Jesus. So I don't think the inconsistency is limited just to this area. It's across the board. But again, it's shocking to me because even back in the day, 40, 50 years ago, when we were, my family was so involved with the religious right, we were still building bridges to people with other points of view. The Republican Party was still something that operated within a political system and not outside of it. And, and now that's changed. Let me change gears a little bit and just ask you another question. Don't want to put you on the spot, but it seems to me that we're at a position now where, you know, when you check out something like the Daily Mail or the other Trump uh, friendly um, Murdoch publications, let alone Fox News, that there are a number of people on the left in the, in the Democratic Party who don't who seem oblivious to providing um, snippets, sometimes taken out of context, sometimes in context that always make the Democrats come across as somehow more interested in identity politics um, than in practical matters. Now, that's not true because the Democrats have a platform and it's one that really affects people's lives. But in your own experience within Congress right now with Nancy Pelosi and other people, um, the squad and all the rest of it, how do you see that? Do you think that sometimes we Democrats shoot ourselves in the foot 
by having people who talk about certain issues that are such red meat to the right that we, in a way, just keep providing headlines for the Murdoch news news machine? Or do you think that um, you know all the problems of, of going too far or being too extreme are on the right? That's not a loaded question. I'm just asking you how you see the congressional members now in the caucus and these other folks being useful to the Democratic Party, or are they driving some people away? And I don't mean Republicans. I mean the folks who would otherwise vote for Democrats. I know there's a debate between, you know, the whole Virginia election, what happened down there. Where do you come down on that? Uh, So the Democratic Party is a big tent, and we uh, represent the beautiful diversity of our country. Mm. I know that there is a huge difference between what various members of Congress say and what actually gets put on the floor of the House and what gets passed. So if you look at the bills that Democrats have passed, uh, we passed a major infrastructure bill. We passed American Rescue Plan that helped get stimulus checks out and helped get kids back into school. Mm. It got people jobs. If you look at other bills we passed, uh, they include reductions in prescription drug prices, uh, again, uh, pay family leave. Uh, and so you're looking at a lot of policies that are supported by the overwhelming majority of Americans, including Republicans uh, in America. That's what's actually getting passed in the House of Representatives. And yes, we have a lot of different members of Congress and they represent their districts and different districts have have different views. But if you actually look at actions, uh, the Democratic Party is the one that is taking the actions that most represents the vast majority of their people in America. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And one of the things is, is, you know, what a shame it is that somehow that is not emphasized enough, or perhaps it isn't just buried. But, you know, when you read even you know, more liberal friendly sources like the Washington Post and the New York Times and the Guardian and so forth, there seems to be um, a kind of a tendency to find fault with the Biden administration, um, almost to the point where, you know, we stood up against the former president for a long time. Now we've got to do the same with this new presidency. It, it seems to me the accomplishments have been downplayed. I don't know how you feel about that, but I think it's easy to tarnish the Democrats with more extreme statements, often not from members of Congress, but from the quote left um, in the academic world, you know, cancel culture, all this other stuff. Um, and what gets buried is exactly what you're saying, the actual things that have been passed. How do you, what is your relationship with the media like? Do you feel that, um, you know, these large media organs and television and TV news really fairly represent the actual achievements of the Biden administration and congressional achievements in this portion of American history? Or is it too much of this quid pro quo, the left says, the right says, um, this kind of attempt at neutrality that that really doesn't seem to give Biden the due I think he should be getting? I don't know where you come down on that. You're absolutely correct. If you just look at the objective data, yeah. the Biden administration did a remarkable job last year. Uh, since January 20th, over 5 million jobs have been created. Just today, uh, the private sector jobs report came out at over 800,000 jobs created. That's more than double the expectations. Mm. You've got a booming economy. Uh, you have a lot more people who, actually you have so many people who, Um, have job opportunities that a large number of Americans are switching jobs to get better jobs. You also uh, have seen a lot more people get vaccinated. Um, 
more than ever before. And unfortunately, what the media does, partly because it's just the way that they monetize what they do, because most media companies are for-profit companies that have to make money, is they focus on conflict. Mm -hmm. And you're not going to see a lot of stories that say just very nice things, because for whatever reason, human beings don't appear to like to read those stories. So Mm -hmm. human beings like to read stories where you've got conflict. And that happens not just in the Biden administration, it does happen across all administrations, but unfortunately it provides a warped view of reality because a lot of the good stories and good data is not being actually presented to American people. Yeah, I mean, I felt that very keenly on a personal level. My son, John, who was in the US Marine Corps and served at the beginning of the Afghan war. Wow, wasn't that a long time ago? and did two tours in Afghanistan, one in Iraq. And of course, when when uh, President Biden uh, got us out of there and you read all the critiques, you know, what I never saw was, you know, here's the way it would have been easy and clean and painless to, to end and in effect lose a 20 year conflict that was dubiously managed from the beginning. You know, my sense was, wow, out of all the presidents who said they needed to draw that war down, including George Bush, who started the war, um, here's somebody who stood up and did it. I would like to see the scenario where this could have been done in an easy, pleasant way. You know, it just seemed there was a real world historical lack of information or knowledge or refusal to admit, you know, how wars end is no prettier than the war itself most of the time. Um, you know, I've just been watching a series on on uh, how the Russians marched into Berlin and what was happening there. You know, there's a war we all quote won, and it turned into the Iron Curtain country because nobody was listening to Winston Churchill. Um, you know, I'd like to find a pretty end to a war. Uh, where, how did you feel about that? Because my sense was this this is not going to end well, and it didn't. But Joe Biden stood up and got us out of there, which is more than I can say for the other folks. Uh, in terms of just a profile and courage. I felt he did the right thing. And I don't see any scenario where it would have been pretty. I just think there's such a lack of reality when it comes to reporting like that. Uh, You are correct. Uh, I previously served on active duty in the U.S. Air Force, so I'm obviously not against war. uh, But I am against wars that we cannot win Mm. and against wars where we don't know why we're even there. And that's unfortunately what happened with Afghanistan. Uh, it morphed into an endless war where our objectives were not clear. And if you look at, again, just the facts, more U.S. soldiers died under the former president uh, than under Biden in Afghanistan. And Joe Biden had the guts to basically pull all of our military out of Afghanistan, which I believe was absolutely the right thing to do. Uh, We were in Afghanistan for two decades. Uh, There were soldiers there who were not yet born when we had entered the war in Afghanistan. And if you can't win a war in 20 years, you're not going to win staying another 20 years. So Mm -hmm. Joe Biden did absolutely the right thing. And you're absolutely correct that uh, war is horrific and it is very difficult to end a war nicely. Mm -hmm. And so the Biden administration did the best they could given the constraints that were put on them. Uh, especially with the agreement that a foreign president had signed with the Taliban that put a lot of handcuffs on what the administration could or could not do as they were withdrawing. 
Yeah, you know, while we're talking about the Biden administration, which, you know, I, I regard you part of in the sense that you're the part of you're in the part of the government that's working and doing its job, uh, which is the House. Um, I'm not saying the senators aren't standing up on the other, uh, you know, in the other body, but but, you know, Congress is really it um, right now in terms of things moving along, uh, because it's not so, it, you know, this 50 50 division. But, you know, my my sense is that. Um, you know, when you look at the Biden administration, you begin to tick off the things that you all in Congress have done with Joe Biden. You know, I just want to pause again and say I've tweeted a lot about this and I've written about it and I've done videos about it. Um, you know, fat lot of good that's done. But it just seems to me that given the hand you, uh, Representative Ted Lieu and Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi and the others who are trying to do something were dealt. Up until an insurrection and storming of the Capitol, a pandemic that feels like the 12th century in Europe and the Black Death more than now, a 20-year war that feels like something out of the 14th century and not even a modern era historical event. Um, you know, I guess you could have added a meteor strike, but other than that, what hasn't Joe Biden faced and what isn't the, the Democratic congressional majority facing you know, I, I am in awe that anything is getting done positive. I'm in awe that the stock market's so high. I am in awe that people are getting jobs at all. I am in awe that the vaccine rollout has worked in spite of this insane anti-vaccination movement of misinformation. Um, me, I am a huge fan of Joe Biden and the Democrats right now. I don't know why other people don't feel that same sense of exhilaration at just, hey, Given the hand they were dealt, we're all still here. Look at what's being done. I just think it's been a terrific track record so far. Uh, that is absolutely correct. If you, again, look at the economy, uh, there has been a massive increase uh, in jobs. Uh, what you're seeing uh, is really a, a booming economy that's leading the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of COVID, really the only thing that the administration could do is try to get more and more people vaccinated and to protect them and to get out treatments for people who continue to get COVID. And we're seeing now pills that you can take, uh, similar mm -hmm. to uh, Tamiflu, uh, that if you were to get COVID, you could take that. And it seems to have pretty high efficacy based on the studies. Uh, so what you've seen is actually uh, even though Omicron is highly contagious and a lot of people are getting it, you've seen um, a lack of corresponding spike in deaths. And mm. that is in large part to the great work by the Biden administration in making sure people have been vaccinated and make sure these treatments are going out uh, and to have hospitals have resources to be able to prevent people uh, from dying. And so um, my sense is that we're gonna have a reduction in COVID uh, in probably spring of this year. We have the Omicron wave pass through, and then hopefully uh, with more and more people getting vaccinated, this would be the last wave of the pandemic. Uh, so we'll see. Yeah, and it seems to me this, this pill that Pfizer, this antiviral that Pfizer's developed and some other antivirals, as you say, that have now been approved by the FDA, they're all gonna come online. Hundreds of thousands of pills will become millions of pills. I think for see, in the foreseeable future between the vaccine and further boosters, 
and then some of this palliative treatment um, coming down online, you know, the threat will recede. I, I don't think that's over-optimistic unless I'm reading everything wrong. Do you, you kind of concur on that? Uh, I do. And the vaccines are working as intended. They were never designed to stop spread. They were designed to stop a person from getting so sick they had to be hospitalized or die. Uh, right. And so vaccines and boosters have been very effective at preventing a very severe illness among people uh, who have contracted COVID. Yeah, I mean, in my own family, I mean, we're all vaccinated and boosted up to the hilt, but um, my daughter who lives in New York and works there and her husband uh, both got uh, COVID over the Christmas season. We had to reorganize our Christmas plans. They're coming up this weekend and we've left the tree up. I keep filling the bucket so that the needles won't fall off. <laughs> but anyway, um, you know, her husband uh, has asthma and allergies and has some health issues and he's in his 50s. And his, his illness was very mild because he had the vaccine. It worked exactly as intended. He had a bad cold for a week. So we've had in our own family an example of the fact that, that you know, if you get the vaccine and are boosted and do what you're told by actual scientists, um, you know, no brainer there, um, things can work out okay. That's absolutely correct. And if anyone is watching or listening um, and they haven't been vaccinated, they should talk to their doctor. And yeah. if they don't have a doctor, they should read what doctors' organizations like the American Medical Association have said about vaccines and boosters. Yeah. Looking looking at the midterms, we're in, you know, I kept writing and tweeting about, you know, we're 2022. Well, we're here now. So we're now in an election year. Um, let me just remind people that you are listening to Representative Ted Lieu. Um, of the United States Congress. And my name is Frank Schaefer, and this is In Conversation with Frank Schaefer. And Ted has been my guest before. We've, we've talked in other venues. I have tremendous admiration for Ted and his leadership. Um, so that said, uh, Ted, when you, when you look toward now the rest of this year being a, a political year, uh, I know there are folks out there saying, you know, it's usual in, an, an, in, a, in a midterm uh, for the ruling party to take a hit and so forth and so on. It just seems to me that the case continues to needing to be made that we've been talking about what the Democrats are actually doing for people. But if you look at the poll numbers, how do you explain this kind of dissonance between where the American people are at on so many issues where they agree with what Democrats are doing and saying and the legislation being passed? And yet, how does that translate into votes? And then to get to the really big elephant in the room, what about voter suppression and all this, everything from gerrymandering to Republicans controlling state houses and seemingly trying to overturn the democratic process up into including challenging elections in the same way Trump did in the past um, when he refused to, to concede? Do you, you know, I, I, I guess I'll, I'll just put it to you this way. Um, for a layperson like me who's not in Congress, you read all these various theories. How grim do you feel this is right now? A, Democrat chances in congressional elections in the Senate coming up and combined with voter suppression and the right to vote bill not going forward. But this, this is not happening right now. Again, I guess it's Manchin and others who have been dragging their feet. What's going on with all this and how do you see it? So in terms of uh, the midterms, I believe that it will largely be decided based on 
two key issues, which is where is COVID in about September of this year and where is inflation? Um, if both of those uh, issues are in a good place, then I think Democrats absolutely have a shot at holding the House and um, picking up more seats in the Senate. We have a great story to tell. Democrats have delivered for the people. In addition to passing the infrastructure law, we also passed, again, the American Rescue Plan that really put our country back on track. And the jobs numbers are, are astounding. Uh, the yes. stock market is also mm-hmm. doing fabulously well. Most people's individual finances are better now than they were uh, a year ago. Mm-hmm. In terms of voting rights, uh, it is absolutely critical for a democracy. There is a big difference between what people think and if they take that one action that matters in democracies, which is actually vote. And if you make it harder to vote, uh, then you're making uh, our democracy um, less like a democracy. And unfortunately, you have a Republican Party that has engaged in passing a lot of laws designed to suppress voters. Uh, some of this is just flat out um, ridiculous. So in Georgia, their legislature passed a provision that said, you can't give water to a voter standing in line waiting to vote. So they're literally leveraging thirst, how thirsty a person is, and trying to use that to get that person to not vote. I mean, think how un-American and offensive that is. Now, what I plan to do is to fly to Georgia uh, in the fall uh, and to hand water out to people standing in line waiting to vote. And I think you're going to see a lot of civil disobedience of, of folks coming out saying, you got these ridiculous voter suppression laws and we're going to violate them and make sure that people actually have the right to vote respected. Mm. Do you think the, the, you know, if you look at the, the, the rhetoric um, from the left in terms of voter suppression and the midterms and these other things, it's a kind of sky is falling scenario. But, you know, since the last president really was the sky falling and the storming of the Capitol really happened, you know, this isn't our imagination. Um, it's a year ago exactly, uh, you know, more or less as we do this talk together. Um, it seems to me that it's, you know, in, in, in the old days before the advent of the last presidency and the storming of the Capitol, you know, I, I would like other people think sometimes it was a little much of an exaggeration to describe the right wing as authoritarian or totalitarian or anti-democracy. Now we really are sliding in that direction. Just as an American citizen, not particularly as a congressman, you know, where do you put us on the chart of Western democracies that seem to be slipping away from democracy as a guiding principle? Thinking of Hungary, some of the things going on in Poland, um, here in the U.S., of course, with the challenging the election, a kind of existential threat to democracy itself seems to be global. Um, and that doesn't even get into the totalitarian and authoritarian regimes gaining strength, um, whether it's China or whatever it may be. It, where are we on that in a kind of a, a large philosophical, spiritual, because it is spiritual as well, sense? You know, is American democracy safe? Is it threatened? Is it as threatened as some people are stating? 
Uh, is voter suppression really going to turn into an anti-democracy movement of kind of a Christian nationalism or a white nationalism? How do you really see this in the quiet of your own mind? Um, give me a feeling of where you're at on this. I'm scared. If you look at the last election, 147 Republican members of Congress voted to nullify the election. Uh, they refused to certify electoral college results. If Republicans win in the midterms, then they're going to be essentially in that position again for the next presidential election. And they could take that same action and nullify uh, the electoral college results. Mm. If you look at January 6th, the foreign president supporters, they didn't show up uh, because they were upset about health care policies. Mm. Uh, they showed up for one purpose, which was to stop the certification of Joe Biden's victory. They showed up and attacked the Capitol to prevent the former president from leaving. They were trying to keep the former president in power and they were using violence to do that. And that is what was so alarming about January 6th that you had folks who were gonna use violence to nullify an election. And then you had Republican legislators that were casting votes to nullify an election. And all of that is going to be essentially on the ballot this November. And if you have Republicans getting control of the House, uh, then the American people, I think, are going to be in a very dangerous place for the next presidential election. Do you see a sort of a demographic pushback that has a racial basis to this? Uh, because I do. Uh, in terms of just the changing demographics of the U.S. and a, and a white um, sort of male minority, you could put it this way, or a traditionalist minority trying to hold on to power. But I also think it's something else. And this kind of gets into my turf um, a little bit that I've written about in my books and, and talked about um, when I've done interviews with MSNBC and others. And that is that there's a real push within the evangelical conservative movement, which as you know, was the backbone of the last presidency in terms of the percentage of voters um, toward what I, ha I think has to be described as a, a vision of government enforcing what is some form of theocracy, not exactly Iran and Saudi Arabia, but more in that direction than what we think of as a secular democracy and a balance of power between the branches of government. And, and it seems to me that, that people in government and in the media have not talked about this enough. So that, yes, we talk about Republican state houses, but if you unpack who those folks are, they are catering to a white evangelical electorate that does not want to see its power diminished either on the racial balance side with Hispanics and Asians and Black Americans and so forth and so on. But even more than that, on what they look at as a series of moral crusades, whether it's abortion or other aspects of, of, of uh, you know, racial politics and other things, and, and a clinging to power, but more than a clinging to power, a clinging to a way of life, which they see directly threatened. Um, and they, I think, have made the calculation that this is worth giving up democracy for, as it's been understood, up into in challenging elections and if need be storming the Capitol. And then now you read these polls of all these very well-crafted studies that have come out saying that a huge percentage of Republicans feel that violence and force against the government is now something they would consider 
and or could be legitimate in certain circumstances. Now, this seems to me a big sea change in American politics. I don't think that in 1958 or 1945, you would have found a lot of people voting Republican who would also answer a poll saying they think that violence is legitimate to overthrow uh, a government and or roll back a, a political decision. So I think it's a very serious situation, but do you think enough attention has been paid to the fact that the evangelical white leadership and the folks they represent as voters have really become something very different than traditional ideas about religion in America allow for? And they are now part of a very definite move against democracy as something that they don't feel they can get the result from, so they're gonna to move to other means. And I think that's really happening. Um, and I hope I'm not being an alarmist about that, but it seems very real to me. I believe you're right. And uh, again, it's one of those issues where I can't understand why, if you're a follower of Jesus, you would support violence. Mm. Uh, just like if you're a follower of Jesus, why would you support family separation? And yet you see all these issues where you've got certain segments of the evangelical community that are taking positions completely opposite uh, what Jesus would do. Mm. Um, and using violence to overturn election is one of those positions. Uh, so why would someone use violence? Well, you would use violence because all rationality has broken down. Mm. And even if you were to ask the 147 Republican members of Congress today who voted to nullify the election um, and say, hey, who stole the election? They couldn't tell you or ask them, how was the election stolen? They couldn't tell you that either. And that's because it wasn't. Uh, basically, the former president got crushed in a popular vote. The former president lost the Electoral College. And because they can't deal with that, they can't have a rational discussion on it. They make stuff up with a big lie, somehow saying, well, it must have been stolen because the foreign president lost. And then they go to violence because mm -hmm. They're unable to have a rational discussion about what actually happened and have a discussion on the actual facts and the data. And that's why they resorted to violence because that was the only tool they could use because violence doesn't have a rationality to it. Yeah, and you know, it, it seems another question that is, uh, comes up immediately when talking about this issue of violence and the kind of anti-democracy push within the Republican party is the judiciary, because, of course, one of Trump's achievements, if you want to call it that, was to do exactly what his evangelical advisors like Franklin Graham and Ralph Reed told him to do, which is to only appoint judges cleared by the Federalist Society, which, by the way, was partly formed because of my dad back in the 70s and 80s, challenging law students to go into the law with the express purpose uh, of becoming conservative, pro-Christian activists and moving up through the judicial um, process. Um, but what is your view, uh, Representative Liu, um, when it comes to the debate over how to, quote unquote, repair some of the politicized damage being done to the Supreme Court, but also the entire federal judiciary? Term limits, stack the court, change things, do something. All these ideas float around, but I, I haven't heard one yet that I thought could, was feasible, uh, agree or disagree. Um, you know, how do you see that? How, what is the possibility of doing something about this huge, you know, tsunami of conservative Republican justices cast in the Amy Coney Barrett mold 
um, in, in terms of folks who were going to actively oppose any kind of democratic process or even support an anti-democracy movement by somehow giving them a pass when, when it comes to how courts decide these things or who gets prosecuted or whatever it may be. First of all, do you see a big problem with a court stacked with so many rather conservative far-right justices, not just at the federal uh, Supreme Court level, but the whole federal judiciary, or is that not a problem? And if it is a problem of all the ideas floating around in terms of what to do about it, what's your particular view of that? So in terms of the federal judiciary, if we look at the lower courts, the district courts and appellate courts, the Biden administration has done a very good job at restoring balance. Uh, President Mm -hmm. Biden has nominated and the U.S. Senate has confirmed a large number of judges at the district court and appellate court level, uh, more so than many other Democratic presidents. Mm -hmm. The Supreme Court continues to remain a problem. And you've seen uh, that they... um, unfortunately uh, allowed a law to go through that basically says, hey, we're gonna allow individual people to sue other individuals who help folks get abortions. Mm -hmm. Uh, To me, that's just a flat out um, way of essentially ignoring uh, a constitutional case, uh, Mm -hmm. Roe versus Wade, Mm -hmm. Uh, but it also leads to if you're going to allow that to happen, huge ramifications, because then this would allow, for example, another state, such as in California, where the governor has already proposed, um, well, why don't we let people uh, sue another individual with respect to um, the fact that they went and got, you know, got a gun. Um, You can take all sorts of constitutional rights and allow people to sue on those. uh, And they would not only have lots of cases in court and, and backlog all the courts, but they would start chipping away constitutional rights by using uh, the civil court process. Mm-hmm. And that uh, seems completely uh, illegitimate. So the U.S. Supreme Court upheld that because these conservative justices have a certain view uh, of abortion that is out of step with the overwhelming majority of Americans. Yeah, and it seems on this issue of them allowing this suit thing that coupled with what we were talking about a moment ago, which is this move towards so many people, at least in opinion polls, saying that they would embrace violence if push came to shove to say roll back an election result that they thought had been stolen or disagree with. Um, That this invitation to some form of vigilantism, because a suit is a pretty violent act in terms of intimidation, not physical, but it is intimidation, really shows such a lack of wisdom on the part of the Supreme Court to not step up on that, irrespective of their view of abortion, because the last thing we need in this heavily armed, polarized country is any legitimizing of vigilantism. I mean, that seems to me a no-brainer, whether it's vigilantism in pursuing uh, uh, you know, people you don't like because they are pro-choice, or for that matter, you know, what's going on in California with the guns. I just, I just think that uh, the last thing anybody responsible, any grown up is going to want to see is anything that encourages vigilantism or individual vigilante type action, whether it's a lawsuit or anything else in that it just seems to feed into the spirit that we already are too much of a wash in here. I don't know how you feel about that. You're correct. And I want folks to think about what would it take for you to assault 
a police officer. Mm-hmm. You had 140 police officers assaulted on January 6th. And I just want the American people to understand that that, in fact, happened. And so, yeah, these folks that were listening to foreign president that went to that extreme, that they attacked the nation's capital and assaulted law enforcement. And if they're willing to go to that extreme, what else uh, would they be willing to do? So we can't pretend that January 6th didn't happen. We can't um, do what some Republicans want to do and simply put in another version of history out. You have, for example, Republican Representative Andrew Clyde that called January 6th, quote, a normal tourist visit, unquote. Uh, we, we can't have that. We can't just be in an alternate reality. January 6th, in fact, did happen. People died from it. Law enforcement was assaulted. Our nation's capital was attacked for the purpose of trying to keep the former president empowered illegitimately through the use of violence. Yeah, you know, back in the day when I was more connected with the Republican Party, I had spent quite a bit of time visiting Congress in the sense of going to people's offices like Jack Kemp and and, uh, Bob Dole and others and had nice chats with people. It never felt like a very threatening atmosphere. You know, the idea of seeing a congressperson coming down the hall carrying a gun, for instance, or wanting to carry a gun in Congress would have just been unthinkable, laughable, uh, something that Mad Magazine would have thought up um, or The Onion or whatever it might be. What's it like on a personal level, Representative um, Ted Lieu, to be serving in Congress where you have some folks who want to open carry weapons in, the, in, in Congress, flout metal detector for protections for everybody who are kind of on the side of people when it comes to, you know, uh, sending out photographs of their family heavily armed at Christmas time as if somehow that's what putting Jesus or Christ back in Christmas is about. Um, you know, if I, I'm a writer, so I'm sitting here alone in my office studio, but I do <laughs> get out sometimes. I, I would not choose to go shopping in a place where a lot of people are open carrying. And the fact that there are actual people in Congress and the Republican Party who have gone to the point of lunacy, from my point of view, that they want to open carry in Congress just seems ludicrous to me. How does it feel personally to be in an environment where you are now working with people who are so off the beaten trail when it comes to issues like this, that they've turned the Congress itself into a kind of a circus with a real element of vigilantism and danger at the edge, not only denying that January 6 happened, but in a way saying, hey, we're part of it. We're gonna, we're gonna carry weapons into this chamber. What's that about? So I have two marksmanship ribbons from the US military. So I'm not against guns. I serve yeah. in the military sure. as well. But I am against uh, people uh, who uh, don't store guns properly, uh, people who have guns and don't know how to use them, mm-hmm. uh, folks that shouldn't have guns getting access to guns. And there is a lot we can do to try to reduce gun violence in America. Mm-hmm. And all I can say is that Uh, the Republican way has not worked. Uh, The Mm. view of the Republican Party is that if you gave more guns to more people, we would be safer. But Mm. that's what we've been doing for decades and decades, and we have not been safer. In fact, we've had all sorts of mass shootings. Uh, We have individual shootings. We have a huge amount of suicides by gun. So I think it's time to try a different approach. Let's Mm. get comprehensive uh, universal background checks passed. Uh, Let's put in 
uh, laws uh, such as uh, red flag laws that does have bipartisan support. So there's a lot of things we can do to reduce gun violence. One place where there should be no guns is a floor of the House of Representatives. I mean, yeah. Why would you need a gun on the House floor? That's one reason there are now metal detectors before you can walk into the House floor. That's not something that's been there uh, before. Uh, when I entered Congress, there were no metal detectors. And because of uh, the craziness of the Republican Party, now we have metal detectors uh, before you can enter the House floor. Yeah, which tells you everything you need to know about the slide away from what we consider a democracy. Part of being in a democracy is that you're not expecting a state house to be invaded by people with open carry weapons, as happened in Michigan, let alone a plot to kidnap the governor, let alone uh, a congresswoman in, you know, getting pictures of herself taken with her armed kids at home for Christmas card and or you know, wanting to enter Congress with a weapon. You know, let me ask you a, a question. What What is the most effective way for American voters who might agree with me that uh, President Biden has done a good job and who are proud of people like you who are doing something really representing we the people? Um, what's the most effective way to show support for President Biden now and to show support for the agenda that would actually have some effect on you and the people you were working with um, when it comes to things like voting rights, for instance. So I think a lot of people who watch this, you know, really want to quote, do something uh, besides voting in national elections. We're all a little stymied on how to do that. Our voices don't seem to be heard very much in the media. We who support Joe Biden rather, rather strongly. Um, and the, the Democrats in Congress like you who are doing something so positive and so good right now. How can we stand up and support you better? What are some practical ways we can do that? I think Abraham Lincoln had a right when he said that public sentiment is everything. Mm. Uh, with it, nothing can fail. Without it, nothing can succeed. And so I want to under, your viewers and listeners to understand their power to shape public sentiment. Mm. Social media is free. If they post uh, something compelling on social media, it might affect a voter in Florida uh, or Ohio or California. Think about writing letters to the editor. Uh, it is true that many newspapers do get letters to the editor. It's also true many times they come from the same people. So if you start writing in, eventually you're going to get published and you can start changing hearts and minds. Mm -hmm. uh, the fact that you're doing your podcast is terrific and people can listen to it and share it. So there's lots of ways to influence public sentiment. Um, I also support uh, nonviolent civil disobedience. Mm -hmm. And so if you're really upset about voter suppression laws, such as those in Georgia, where they prevent voters standing in line from uh, being given water uh, for their thirst, then people can do what I'm gonna do, which is I'm gonna go hand water out to voters standing in long lines mm. uh, in Georgia for this next election. Mm. Um, so I would look at all the different actions you can take, uh, including uh, supporting campaigns for issues or people uh, that you like, uh, volunteering. Um, there's all sorts of things you can do to make America a better place. Mm. You know, I, the last six years I've been working on this book, uh, fall, fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy, which basically lays out a legislative agenda toward the end of the book, um, telling folks like you, I guess, um, you know, what I think ought to happen. Of course, uh, the Biden administration's already tried to do a lot of this in terms of supporting children and paid family leave and doing things for women and minorities in the workplace, child care, all the rest of it. I feel personally very frustrated having been working on this book 
that we have an administration with a Democratic majority in Congress and a 50-50 tie in the Senate. I, I have to tell you, I, you know, I don't want to sound um, mean, but I, I'm quite angry with people like uh, you know, Joe Manchin and, and Cinema and these other folks. I, I just think, you know, why would you choose this moment of history to throw sand in the gears of something that can really do some good? in terms of the family issues that I talk about in my book. Um, you know, here we have a moment where people are quitting jobs because they wanted to spend more time with their families. They got a taste of this during COVID. People like my son, who's working out of his house, who told his company, look, I'll come in a day a week the way I've been doing during the COVID pandemic. I've shown that I can do my work from home. I like being home when the kids leave for school in the morning and be around for them when they come back in the afternoons. I'm not, you know, I'll look for more work in another place if I can't continue to do this. It seems to me that the people, we the people are speaking through our actions of trying to put family first, of doing all sorts of things that are reflected in the values of the Biden administration's legislative agenda. Why is this being screwed up by a tiny, tiny little group of people that represent a fraction of the American population when so much of this is self-evidently what we need to have happen? What is your theory on what drives this uh, kind of, I don't know, um, you know, rebellion against the Democratic majority will within the Democratic Party itself? What has happened with, with Manchin and Cinema, and what is this all about? Because I look at it gobstruck, just like, how can, how can this be happening when we all know the next election depends on delivering? Here's a president who's been delivering. Why don't we help him deliver more? What is the what has gone on with these people that they are so obstructionist? As it seems to me, maybe I'm using the wrong terms. Correct me if I'm wrong. So, uh, I understand your sentiment and your feeling. I'll just give you my perspective. Mm. The House of Representatives, we had a three to four vote margin last year, very thin, and we passed some monumental laws. It was. 99% unified among the Democratic Party. Same in the U.S. Senate. Uh, they also passed American Rescue Plan. 100% U.S. Democratic Senate supported it. Same with the uh, infrastructure law. Joe Manchin is a little easier uh, to explain because he is in a state that is overwhelmingly Republican. Um, if you were to just look at it, he likely shouldn't even be there as a Democrat. Uh, so it is a little easier to explain his actions based on the state that he's coming from. But largely we've had enormous unification within the Democratic Party on the order of 90 some percent all voting for the same legislation. Unfortunately in the US Senate, because it's exactly split 50-50 on some of those pieces of legislation, if you don't get 100%, then it's not going to pass. Now there are ways around this, uh, this next election. You could, for example, elect Tim Ryan from Ohio to U.S. Senate. Uh, that would then give us um, a margin where we don't have to rely on Joe Manchin's vote, mm -hmm. for example. So there are ways to overcome this if we elect more Democratic U.S. Senators as well as House members this November. Mm. Well, and what, what about the, the, the other person whose name keeps coming up um, in terms of this uh, preventing preventing uh, the Biden administration from closing the deal on so much that is obviously favored by the majority of the American people because we have uh, a person from Arizona 
uh, who, you know, seems to, 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 to be sticking uh, sticks into the machinery of government again and again and dragging her feet as well. What, you know, you've explained Manchin. What, what about that? Uh, I can't explain that. I, I don't. You, you'll have to ask her. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever had conversations with either of these people personally? Oh, I, I work with, with uh, Curious and Cinema and had numerous conversations with her when she served in the House of Representatives. Uh, yeah. But since she's moved over to the Senate, I have not uh, had a lot of conversations with her. Yeah, I, I met and talked with her once when I was in Arizona doing some fundraising um, I, as part of a thing that Nancy Pelosi puts together every year or used to. I don't know what's happening now post-COVID, but kind of a think tanky weekend, people coming in, lectures and so forth, I had a little chat with her then, but um, it boggles my mind because if this isn't a world historical moment of opportunity, I don't know what is. I mean, in terms of COVID and, and the reordering of society and people wanting to stay home with their kids more and work, I mean, how could anybody in their right mind get in the way of a program of the kind of legislative thing that I lay out in the book and that you, I know are for, um, when it comes to making it easier to have a child and have a family in this country, uh, you know, support for families and so forth. I just don't get it. But anyway, um, let me turn to one other thing, you know, b- before we wrap this up. Um, do you do you think that the the remaining time of, of Biden's administration until the next election and not to mention these midterms, um, what do you think the chances are of the next big legislative agenda piece being passed in some form. Where would you put that? Because I know folks would be interested, and I, I am too. What, how do you see it? What, what are we going to get done? And when does it become lame duck time and nothing more happens? Well, uh, President Biden is not going to be uh, a lame duck anytime soon. Uh, he's actually been in office less than one year uh, so yeah, far. I understand that. Uh, but when it comes to this next big piece of things like the the family leave and all the rest of this paid family leave, it, it keeps sort of being moved down. It was all going to be happening before the turn of the year. Now we're into the next year. Um, I don't want to be over pessimistic or optimistic on this. I'm just wondering what's your view in terms of maybe a thumbnail of a schedule of achievement? Because we've Joe Biden and you all have done so much in the first part of his presidency, more than any other president that I can remember. I wasn't alive during Franklin Roosevelt's time. But uh, other than that, historically, I can't think of anything parallel. What, what's the next step here that we can look forward to that you think actually can be achieved? So the Biden administration uh, can certainly take some executive actions uh, to implement some of their goals on the Build Back Better Act. They can continue to try to press Senator Manchin uh, to um, vote for the Build Back Better Act. Senator Manchin does say sometimes different things on different days. Uh, I know that the U.S. Senate is focused on getting voting rights legislation through right now. I hope they're able to do that. Uh, so um, my view of politics is that uh, everything seems impossible until it happens. Yeah. Uh, so you never know when uh, something great will happen. You just have to keep pushing and pushing. And uh, that's what we intend to do in the House of Representatives. And that's what the Biden administration is going to continue to do. And people, again, can get involved and try to help shape public sentiment. Um, and my view is we just have to keep pushing and then eventually something good will happen. And, and, and last question, uh, just before we wrap this up, and that is, if you had your druthers in terms of priorities with voting rights, for instance, as one item or 
a family-friendly agenda, a child-friendly agenda, a woman-friendly agenda that comes in some of the other parts of the package. What are your personal priorities, uh, Ted, in terms of, you know, if you could just push a button and we're given a choice that, look, you can't have everything, but we'll give you something this morning, what would it be? What is the most important uh, I, thing in front of you right now? I still think right now COVID is the most important thing. Hmm. Um, if I were... Uh, King for a day, I would uh, have everyone get vaccinated because having unnecessary deaths uh, is not only anti-Christian, it's just remarkably needless and horrific. Uh, so I just wish more people would talk to their doctors about the benefits of vaccines and boosters, because once they do that, they're going to get vaccinated. Yeah. Yeah. And optimistic or pessimistic about the remaining years of the Biden administration? I'm optimistic because I think he's done a lot. I'm with you. I think things, nothing can happen until suddenly they do. I'm expecting good things to happen. How, how about you? I'm very optimistic. Uh, we, we're continuing to see the benefits for the American Rescue Plan that we passed last year. And now we've got the infrastructure law going into effect. We passed um, something that the former president tried for four years and couldn't get done. This is a major investment, not only in roads, bridges, and highways, but also in getting internet access and broadband everywhere in America, from mm. rural areas to the inner city, getting uh, EV charging stations across America. Uh, there's a lot of uh, great things in that law and taking lead out of water pipes. So mm. we're going to uh, create even more jobs this year, and I do believe that with every passing day, and you can track these statistics, uh, essentially more than a million people either get vaccinated or get booster shots uh, every single day. And as that keeps progressing, eventually we are going to um, take COVID and make it uh, something uh, that is in the past instead of constantly with us every day. Well, on that note, may I wish you a happy new year and your family um, good health and, and everything good and protection to you all. Uh, and just end on the note that um, tell folks again that you are listening to and are watching In Conversation with Frank Schaefer. If you like this podcast and think it's important, please like it in the online sense of liking it and passing it on, subscribing, et cetera. Uh, my new book, um, Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy is out. It reflects a lot of the legislative agenda I've been talking about with Ted. And then just let me end again, Ted, by saying I think the Biden administration in one year has done more than most administrations have done in the entire eight terms, uh, eight years of two-term presidencies uh, that I can think of. Um, you know, I'm only pushing 70, but I've seen a little bit. I've never seen anything like this year for achievement. So thank you. Uh, Representative uh, Ted Liu for being part of this historic moment and being a real leader. I know you're a very humble, self-effacing guy, but I tell you what, you know, from the outside, you're one of the great hopeful leaders within this, this government right now. And thank you so much for standing up for the rest of us and doing so many things so well uh, at this really crucial moment. So thank you. And um, keep us posted on what we can tell folks in terms of seeing that the Republicans do not manage to railroad our democracy in the wrong direction, um, but instead we can stand up and, and, and continue to win. So thank you, thank you so much. Thank you, Frank. It's an honor to be on your show. In Conversation with Frank Schaefer is a production of the George Bailey Morality and Public Life Fellowship. 
It is produced by Ernie Gregg and hosted by Frank Schaefer, author of Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy, a post-pandemic blueprint for rebalancing work and family in favor of love and living. To learn more and support the show, please visit lovechildrenplanet.com.